Hello, everyone. Steve Edelman here. Welcome to another edition of the TCOYD podcast. Unfortunately, my co-host, Dr. Pettis, is not with us today, but we do have a very uh, impressive guest, good friend and colleague, Dr. David Sobel, who spent his whole career on preventative medicine and patient education uh, at some prestigious institutions, including Stanford. David, tell us a little bit more about your background. And uh, just for everyone to know that David has has been a regular speaker when we were doing face-to-face conferences up in the Santa Clara area where he's from, and now we got him on our podcast today. Thank you. Welcome. Steve, it's great to be here. And, you know, I have to joke sometimes my specialty in practicing medicine is preventive medicine. I always joke that I'm trying to prevent medicine. And one of the best <laughs> ways to prevent medicine is to really educate people and in particular address issues around lifestyle and behavior change. And so for almost 40 years, I practiced medicine and primary care uh, with Kaiser Permanente and the Permanente Medical Group in Northern California. Mm-hmm. And I'm now adjunct faculty at Stanford University School of Medicine and the new Kaiser Permanente School of Medicine in Pasadena, where I get a chance to help educate the next generation. Now, that's that to me was uh, amazing when I heard that. So Kaiser, we know, is a healthcare system, but now they have their own medical school. Just starting, I think it's in its third year now. So mm-hmm. we don't want to get off on too many tangents, yeah. but how is that different from a traditional medical school? And are those doctors going to be trained in a certain type of approach? Yeah, the uh, I, I was impressed when I first heard the plans for the medical school. And I was in the audience and I raised my hand and I said, how can I apply? And the guy joked and he said, well, David, uh, you know, after we get it started, maybe you can come and teach. I said, no, no, you don't understand. I want to go to this medical school. (laughs) Um, It's all case-based learning. So there's no separation of learning anatomy, physiology, from learning to work with patients clinically. And within a couple of weeks of starting medical school, the patient, the uh, medical students are already interacting with patients. Large advocacy for uh, communication skills and behavior change. And very importantly, the well-being of the medical students themselves. Because the burnout issue among practicing physicians now is so severe it's not just physicians, obviously, it's nurses and other healthcare providers that we're trying to immunize uh, the medical students to help prevent that burnout and l- help them learn how to thrive in a busy clinical practice. Well, a lot of those characteristics sounds a little bit of what we do at TCOID. We have a continuing medical education program that I'm a big believer in case-based. Yeah. And what we're trying to do at TCOID is take control of your diabetes, the more people with diabetes know about their own condition, it makes the communication Mm -hmm. much better with their provider. And it makes the provider's job easier and much more satisfying when their patients do well. I don't have to tell you, this is your area. Well, Uh, you know, it's really funny. When I first started working at Kaiser Permanente, I developed a slide which kind of looked like a pyramid or an iceberg. And at the very top, the part that's above the surface, let's say, of the iceberg 
is the professional care system. It's what you and I do as practicing physicians, the whole professional healthcare system. But submerged beneath the surface is really the hidden healthcare system. And I've said now for over 40 years, the true primary care provider in the healthcare system is actually patients themselves, what they do for themselves and what they do with their families and communities. And our job really should be to educate, equip, and empower the true primary care provider. And that's obviously what uh, you're about. Yeah, I appreciate that. Well, you know, we're going to be talking about uh, behavior change made simpler today. And behavior is such an important thing in diabetes. It's like 90% of it. So let me just start off by saying I know you've worked for many years on the development and evaluation of chronic disease self-management programs at Stanford since you became adjunct uh, professor. Tell us a little bit what you learned. Um, first of all, uh, I got to work with Kate Lorig and Hal Holman and others at Stanford on the development and evaluation of what is called the chronic disease self-management program. This is now the largest, most evaluated patient education program in the world. Over a million people have either done the face-to-face versions in small groups or the online versions, and it's been evaluated again and again in studies showing that it can be very helpful in improving symptoms, reducing the healthcare costs and the amount of time in the hospital and visits to doctors. Now, the interesting thing about it, uh, or the findings, is that we found out that the core skills that people need to learn when they have a chronic illness are common across most of the chronic illnesses. It's how to manage stress. It's how to manage diet. It's how uh, to be act physically active, um, engaged with your community, and so on. So we decided to put together into one course the 80% of the skills that people need. And, you know, people who have diabetes, for example, seldom have just diabetes. They often have other chronic conditions. And so if you fragment their care and send them here for this and there for that, what if we could help them learn the, uh, the 80% of the skills? And what we found out is there are certain things that people learn better from other patients than they do from professionals. If you put a professional in a room, a doctor like myself, and they give a lecture on diabetes, oh yeah, people may know more. But if you put them in an interactive workshop with other lay people who themselves have diabetes, they actually don't not only know more, they actually change their behavior more. And so we have to often get the professionals out of the room. Yeah. (laughs) You know, we're deadly and toxic often to the process of people stepping forward to help solve their own problems. And I would say probably over half the people who go through the program at some point realize if my doctor was going to fix and save me, they would have done it. If my spouse was going to fix and save me, they would have done it. This is my condition. I have to roll up my sleeves, get in there, and become part of the solution. Take control of your condition. That's so right. this program you're talking about, and I'll, I'll, 
I'll claim ignorance, David. Mm -hmm. It sounds impressive. Mm -hmm. Um, It's really for a a laundry list of chronic conditions. We also have uh, one focused on diabetes, uh, one focused on arthritis. So there can be more specific programs. But the key often is the skills you need to learn are often common across most of the chronic conditions. You're you're reminding me, David, Mm -hmm. um, of what I did quite regularly for years before COVID was shared medical appointments. So I had them for people with type 1 diabetes, type 2. I'd separate the sexes, women with type 1, men with type type 1, et cetera. And um, it was amazing. I was the moderator, but we went through everybody's, you know, their glucose yeah. values. We ran around the table, and you wouldn't believe they didn't even need me anymore. Right? You know, Pearson had a problem with getting low during exercise, and they had like four or five other folks were saying, "Did you try this? Did you try that?" Right. Then they ended up becoming friends and like little support groups. But you're right; uh, people learn from each other, and I think they they listen to each other more than they listen to the doctor. And I'll say one more quick story. Sure. When I was setting up my shared medical appointment, I was going through my list of patients and there was a someone there that was setting up the shared medical appointments for us people who were gonna do it at the university. And I said, oh, that patient, he's, he's a pain. He hasn't done anything I've suggested for years. And he goes, no, that's the person you want. And sure enough, that person who I was quite frustrated with for years, I couldn't, I couldn't get that person any better. I saw the look on their face when they, everyone else was talking about it, and he was seeing how well they were doing. And he, yeah. he, turned, he turned around. Yeah. So that was amazing. Well, what surprised you the most about studying? Well, I, I'm going to tell you about a study finding from 1989 that I have to say I've been working on continuously because it's the most important finding in behavior change that I've come across. Here's the puzzle. People went through the arthritis self-management program, and they got better. They had less pain, less disability, less hospitalizations, visits to the doctor. Without more medication. Right. And we got really excited about that. And we said, oh, we go and we help them change their behavior, and guess what? They get better. Well, here's the problem. There was almost no correlation between those who changed their behavior and those who got better. And I just got to tell you, that is staggering when you think about it. And so we went back to the people in the groups and said, look, you got better. Why did you get better? And what they said is, I felt more confident. I felt more in control. And we went to the people who didn't get better. And they say, it doesn't matter if I change my behavior. I feel hopeless, helpless, and not in control. The key differentiator or predictor of improvement was not the behavior change itself, but it was rather the change in a person's sense of confidence, success, and sense of control. So the program was then redesigned to try to emphasize that. And I know this is going to sound like sacrilege, but (laughs) we almost don't care what behavior that somebody selects that they want to change. What we care about is that they have a small success experience, that they celebrate it, and then that leads them to want to change more. And there is a biology of confidence. When somebody feels more confident in control, it changes 
their disease and disease course. Well, that, David, uh, what you're saying rings so true in people with diabetes. Yeah. It's almost like you were, you've been with this organization for the last 25 years. That's, that's so true. You, you have to celebrate those little successes and the confidence is so important. And we, I'm a big believer that education and knowledge also builds confidence as well. Now, I can just tell you that when I talk to my physician colleagues about their patients with diabetes, they, they say the same thing. My patients aren't motivated yeah. to take control of their diabetes. And, and you know what? And they, they really develop a negative attitude towards their patients. Right. It's, and then that creates bad communication between them. Everything goes downhill. There's no empathy or trust between provider and the patient. So what, what can yeah. you say to that? Um, uh, and there's a lot of listeners <laughs> out there. Most of the people listening are not healthcare professionals. Right. Um, what I say to them is before you label somebody as being unmotivated, walk in their shoes. That is, do you really know what motivates them? And it may turn out that maybe it isn't their diabetes, okay? And maybe it isn't your agenda of highest priority. But it turns out life is damn complex. And people are juggling and managing many challenges in their lives, from having teenagers to financial problems to uh, problems with housing, problems with nutrition. And they may be motivated about something, but truthfully you may be clueless about what is really motivating them or what their priorities are. Now, you can sometimes find that out, help them create success experiences in that area that they are really motivated to change, help them do what they really want to do, and then they often become more motivated about uh, doing other things. Can, can I give you a case example? Yeah, yeah. Okay. Absolutely. So here, here is a case of a patient who taught me the most about behavior change of anybody in my 40 years of practice. He was overweight. He had diabetes. His hemoglobin, who was a, A1C, was 10.3. Uh, he was hypertensive. He was sedentary. A very nice guy. Okay? But we had repeated failure experience. I would tell him what to do, sure. and he wouldn't do it. And, and you, you wrote in his chart non-compliant. I wrote I'm in his chart <laughs> non-compliant, and I even tried guilt induction. At one point, I pulled out my quality scores. You know, as a physician, they look at, am I controlling A1C in patients with diabetes? I put out my quality score. I said, look, you're pulling down my quality scores. <laughs> if you won't do it for yourself, help me out here. One day, and for reasons I do not understand, I asked him, what do you really enjoy? Now, this is a patient who I thought I knew, okay? I could tell you how many children he had. I could tell you about his job. I could tell you about his spouse, all the social history. But I suddenly realized I had no idea what he really enjoyed, what really motivated him. He changed suddenly. He said, trout fishing. I love to go trout fishing. I stand out in the stream. I don't care if I catch anything. I just love being out there. Well, the light bulb went on for me. First of all, he wasn't unmotivated. He was unmotivated about managing his diabetes. Sure. Or, but he wasn't unmotivated. Second, 
is he wasn't just an unmotivated patient pulling down my quality scores. I now saw him as a trout fisherman, and my job became, how can I keep him out in that stream, trout fishing, as long as possible, as healthy as possible? So I said to him, when you're out in the trout stream, do you need to have good feeling in your feet so that you could sense the rocks down below? Oh, yes, he said. <laughs> I said, do you need to have good control over your arm as you cast in order to be able to cast? Yes. I said, do your vision need to be sharp to be able to see the trout and strike? He said, yes. I said, well, that's what we need to work on to keep you out in the stream. And of course, I was mentioning some of the things and complications that occur with unmanaged diabetes. So my job became, how do I align with what he really is motivated about, which is trout fishing, with hemoglobin A1C, which means nothing to him. Sure. But being able to prevent complications like a stroke where he couldn't cast, keeping his vision sharp, keeping his sensory system intact— that he cared about. Now, I wish I could tell you it was a miracle that his hemoglobin A1C magically dropped to seven or whatever. Yeah. No, but it improved substantially. And it improved because he wasn't unmotivated. I was clueless about what really motivated him. And so I encourage physicians now, you do not know your patient if you don't know what they really enjoy what excites them. And truthfully, if there is nothing that they can come up with that excites them, that they find pleasurable, you have to think they're depressed. And then you need to explore Work on and that. help manage depression. You know, you know, David, uh, thank you for that story. Um, you know, I, I'm a firm believer that if you're uh, a doctor that deals with people with diabetes, any healthcare professional, um, it's one of those fields where you really have to know your patients, know a little bit about their family, what they do for a living, and it's kind of an extension of what what are the pleasures in their life. And you know, David, our healthcare system so broken, doctors don't have time. They have no freaking time to even, oh, you, dear Mrs. Schultz, you, you got... We have time for two questions today. And if you have more questions, we'll make another appointment. Right. And it's not really the, the caregiver's fault. They're in a tough system. But the other thing I was going to say is that what your story reminded me of, I've always been told, and I've, I tell people all the time, scare tactics don't work. But you took a little twist on that. Yep. You didn't just say you're going to lose your sight and lose your feet. You said you're not going to be able to go trout fishing effectively. Right. And um, it's, such, it's so important that you know what, what I see as a – older physician now is that uh, the younger doctors just don't have time to develop some kind of knowledge about their patients, their lifestyle. But Steve, I, 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 let me interject. That interchange with the patient that I just described took less than 30 seconds. Uh, so we think we don't have time, but mm -hmm. sometimes we're doing a lot of things inefficiently and again, you know, I don't walk into an exam room with a new patient and say to him, oh, hi, nice to meet you. What do you really enjoy? Sure. It evolves out of a relationship. Yep. Um, but, uh, you know, it's like a health promotion program for me, too, because I got to repair children's dolls and return them to a charity. I got to fix a cherry red Camaro to pristine condition. Uh, in other words, I get to participate 
in not just the problems and setbacks and failures in patients' lives, but I get to celebrate their successes. And I guess that's the second behavioral lesson that I learned, is we don't give ourselves enough credit and we don't allow time to celebrate small successes. Yeah. So permit me another quick story. Yep. Well, uh, can I ask you a quick yeah. question first? Yeah. Then I want to hear the story. Yeah. Well, since most of the people listening are patients, and we've been talking a lot what doctors should do, caregivers, yeah. um, what do you suggest a patient should do when they, as they develop a relationship with their doctor, find out what the doctor likes to do? No, but <laughs> it's all about, um, you know, you want to get trust in your caregiver. Yeah. And I think you're going to get more trust if, if you know that doctor. Well, I have a um, poster. You know, you walk into a doctor's exam room and you see all their diplomas and everything. And after a while, that's pretty boring. They're all you, digital now, David. Yeah, okay. <laughs> so, you know, what are you going to look at those plaques on the wall? Um, I, I put up on the poster, here's how I thrive. Here's what I really enjoy. Mm-hmm. And I put some of the things up there. I see. Because I'm willing to share those with patients because I'm a human being too. But I, I want to take it back to the patient themselves, okay. is that we often focus on all these behaviors. But what we don't necessarily ask ourselves is, you know, what's really important to me? What do I really, really enjoy? And then how do I prevent or manage things from getting in the way of that? And I think that's a good starting point for behavior change because truthfully, If somebody is trying to change something just because somebody else told them that they needed to do that, the likelihood of success is extremely small. And the other thing is they need to break it down into a tiny, tiny step, which they're 70 to 80% confident they're going to be able to do in the next week. And then when they do it, give themselves a big pat on the back. Because that mood change of feeling that I have done something that I committed to do, even if it's small, is extremely important in building that sense of success, that sense of confidence. And sometimes um, this celebration doesn't take place. But sometimes it's a surprise. I took my car in for service. Nothing was wrong with it. The service attendant walked around my car He looks at the tires and rims on my car, and then he goes back in and he checks the mileage, and he said, are those the original tires? And I go, yeah. He said, this is amazing. At this mileage, I would have expected to see much more damage to the rims and wear and tear on the tires. You've done a great job of protecting your tires and rims. Now, here I am. I thought he was going to sell you a whole new set that you don't need. No, no. But <laughs> That's the what they point, usually do. <laughs> I know, but the point, uh, the point was he made me aware of something that I had actually done successfully. Mm-hmm. And that made me feel very good as I drove out of the dealership. I am now a new identity. I'm the protector <laughs> of tires and rims. I'm not trying to lay some tire and go into that turn fast. Why I say that that's important is because... When patients come in to the doctor's office, it's often all the focus is on the things that didn't happen, the things that failed, the changes that didn't take place. We need to discover and celebrate genuinely the very small things 
that people have accomplished yeah. in struggle often with a very complex life. Yeah, one thing my uh, partner in crime, Jeremy Pettis, says is, you know, you go to the eye doctor and, and what's the best news that nothing happened? And Bill mm. Polonsky, a clinical psychologist yeah. that you've met, you know, well-controlled diabetes is the leading cause of nothing. And so, you know, it's it's turning some, it's getting some positive messages out yeah. there. So is behavior mm. change always difficult? You know, a, as a provider that doesn't that doesn't have a specialty in it, mm-hmm. um, I always, when I think of behavior change, I, I always feel like it's impossible. Yeah. Uh, and <clears throat> you know, the, and and I've I've gotten past that with the people I take care of because I develop relationship with mm-hmm. them. But I have more time than most providers do these days as well. But like you said. Uh, I stand corrected. It doesn't take long to get a few non-medical questions to your patients about their life, their family, what do they do, and what are, what are some of the things they like doing on their well, free time. Well, you know, I think one of the most disabling beliefs among patients as well as doctors is that all behavior change is the same and it's all difficult. Now, yep. let me give you just a quick example. If you give a cell phone, a smartphone to a teenager – how long do you think it takes them to develop the rather complex behavior <laughs> of texting or social networking with their friends? Yeah, milliseconds. Milliseconds, <laughs> right. So whenever you think about behavior, you have to say, who is the person? What is their motivation to accomplish this? And have you designed the environment to be able to make that easier and help them do it? And I'm going to give you just a really off-the-wall example. You walk in to the airport in Sherpool Airport in Amsterdam. And if you're a male, you're going to go in and see the urinal, and you're going to see something pretty strange there. In the urinal, embossed on the enamel of the porcelain is a tiny fly. And you may think, why is that there? It's because there's something called spillage. And that is guys cannot seem to get all the urine into the (laughs) urinal. And it causes enormous frustration because the cleaning crews have to come in and keep cleaning up. And they tried everything. Nothing worked. Then somebody who understood the male brain and behavior very well decided to make it a game and put a little fly in the urinal. And guys cannot resist trying to hit that fly with the stream. The result was an 80% reduction in spillage. Now, I love that example because it's a (laughs) complex behavior. It was refractory. They couldn't change it. And then somebody applied science in understanding how to approach it in a sense to make it more pleasurable, enjoyable, and engaging And that's the kind of behavior design we need to apply to other complex behaviors. That that is, you know what, us guys, we love to nail things, you know, as we urinate in the open space. (laughs) But, you know, think about all the mothers that complain that have young boys. They splatter all over the place. <laughs> yeah. Why can't we adopt that idea? Get yeah. like a Pokemon yeah, you know, right. figure in the right in right. the middle of the base of the toilet. Mm. Just think how much less splatter that well, would be. Well, uh, there, there is a David, fun, that's, a, that's a great there's idea. There's fun theory, which is a way to design things to be more fun. So, for example, they had a stairway in a public transportation area. 
And next to it, they had an escalator. So what they did on the stairway is they put piano keys. And when you stepped on each stair, it would make a tone. And what they found out is that people loved going up and down the stairs, making music, as opposed to using the escalator. So they didn't think they were exercising. Right. Okay, but they were exercising because it was behaviorally designed to be engaging and enjoyable. And that's the kind of science and intelligence that we need to bring more and more into helping people do what they really want to do. If they want to become more physically active, by it's something that's more pleasurable and enjoyable for them. Something they relate to. Yeah. Well, as we finish up, I think it's important to end with some of your um, guidelines for simpler steps to behavior change that our listeners can take home. Yeah. Okay. So the first thing is I think you have to link it to something you really want to do. If you want to prescribe failure for yourself or somebody else, and I know how to do it. I know how to do it for patients. I know how to do it for myself. I know how to do it for my son. I know how to do it for my wife. And here's the formula. First of all, make it something you tell somebody else to do. Second, you make it lifelong. You know, I'm talking about something not for the next week, but I'm asking you to commit right at this moment to doing something for the rest of your life. Make it difficult, okay? (laughs) Take away something that somebody enjoys, and you have the formula for failure. But if you flip all those things around, you have a formula for success. First of all, it's something you really want to do. And you continually envision how that behavior links back to something you find enjoyable, pleasurable, and fulfilling. The second thing is you make it very crispy. That is, make it short-term. Try it. Try a little experiment. Try it for a week. Do mid-course corrections if it doesn't work. Keep scaling the behavior down till you get 70 to 80% confident. We call it the confidence test, that you're going to be successful. And if you do that, then celebrate the success of accomplishing that. Those, I know they, it's not rocket science, but it is science. These are the kinds of things from behavioral science that we've learned that seem to work the best to help people really, really stay engaged. Wow. You're right. It's not rocket science. It When you hear it, it's intuitive, but you have to follow those guidelines. And, uh, and it, it, there's no more perfect disease that it relates to than diabetes, type 1 or type 2. Well, David, um, thank you so much for this enjoyable podcast. Thanks. And I'd like to thank the people listening for taking 30 minutes to invest in their own health. Uh, and uh, to build their own confidence around behavior change. Thank you, sir. Yeah.